0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Matt Hancock kisses his cabinet career goodbye. But what does the health secretary's departure tell us about how Britain is run today? We used to be
1: the grandees would turn up at some club in London and say, oh, I think it's time you better go. Or X has really had a fair run, crack of the whip, time for him to go. And these sort of, you know, aristocrats of the shires, or whatever, would decide the fate of a Tory politician who'd erred or done some wrongdoing. I feel the decision's made somewhere else now, somewhere around the baby shard where News UK is based, in some lobbying group. It's all very, the way this came out is much more disturbing to me, really, than the fact two people happened to have a snog in an office.
0: Plus, an exclusive interview with Jolian Maugham, the lawyer who has taken a pay cut to become the scourge of government. His Good Law project has challenged ministers over PPE contracts awarded, sometimes to their friends. Every rogue, every SPIV ever,
2: has seen in a national crisis the opportunity to make a lot of money.
0: All that to come, first a reminder that unlike, say, GB News, Byline Times isn't backed by a hedge fund or foreign investor. Our independence allows us to speak truth to power and to challenge corporate interests. You can help by taking out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, a snip at just £36 a year. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com and enjoy the satisfying thunk of a quality newspaper landing on your doormat. Now, Matt Hancock's recent departure as health secretary felt like a landmark moment in the history of Boris Johnson's government. The Prime Minister stood by Dominic Cummings after the Barnard Castle incident. He refused to sack Priti Patel when she was found to have bullied staff at the Home Office. Robert Jenrick kept his position as housing secretary after helping a Tory donor save hundreds of millions of pounds in tax and even the exam grading fiasco couldn't dislodge Gavin Williamson as education secretary. Hancock would have remained in office too if Johnson had had his way, despite snogging colleague Gina Colodangelo in the office and thus breaching the social distancing guidelines he had helped draw up. Regardless of what the PM later tried to claim, it was backbench Conservative MPs, not him, who finally persuaded the health secretary to go. Byline Times executive editor Peter Dukes has been reflecting on Hancock's final half hour. The reason that
1: Hancock actually turned out to have resigned was about having an affair with somebody he worked with, right, who was taken on business trips, was given a role in the Department of Health. I think Boris Johnson is in a tricky situation with this because if anybody remembers the Jennifer R. saga which apparently they had a relationship over many years and she was taken on business trips when he was mayor of London given grants so both on if you like the moral personal level and I think you know private lives are private and people have complicated relationships and sexuality but the sense of you know loyalty to your partner both have issues but in the public interest both have issues because that crossing over into their business life and not their business life, their taxpayer funded business life, because, you know, effectively, we paid Matt Hancock's partner as we paid for Jennifer R. Curry. So there's on that personal level, he is somewhat on a sticky wicket. And if you remember back, according to Dominic Cummings, when he was previously number 10 advisors, it keeps on leaking out these text messages. Prime Minister thought his health secretary was effing hopeless back a year ago. And it is, I suppose, extraordinary for all of us. And a sort of a horrible flashback to the nineties. Here we go, personal sleaze, titillating scandal. He leaves because of that, not because all the failures of the coronavirus response. You know, can't even list the you know deceptions over data, the sharing of data with private companies, the failures of so many of the medical programs under his control, with the exception of the vaccine, which has been successful. So I just think we can see why Boris Johnson didn't want to sack him, because he'd have to sack himself. So you notice, too, if you have a habit of misleading the public, and I think there's quite a well-documented account, particularly by Peter Obel, and a video, Peter Saranovich, you can find it on Twitter. If you have a habit of misleading the public you get into that, kind of habit it's very difficult to keep your story straight because reality is much more easy to remember I find anyway I don't know about you Adrian than a fiction and we see even though the resignation oh he's you know it's let's move on it's all over he's not going to resign and then he hands in his resignation as if you know he'd done his own will and now Boris Johnson is claiming the credit for getting rid of him that is a sign, the creakiness around this government and their lack of openness with the public. And I think personally, and I go back to that famous video during the 2019 election campaign, where confronted by a reporter in a hospital of a video or a picture of a boy stuck on the floor in AE, e he said, you just ignored it. And then he stole <laughs> or took away the reporter's camera. And the reporter said, you put your camera in your pocket. Oh, have I? Here it is back. His will to power, his will to see <laughs> the same things, he he wants to see them, is like, sorry, uh, I don't mean this personally, I have no personal animosities. to Boris Johnson. I met him once very briefly. It's like a six-year-old child who goes, if I hide my eyes, nobody can see me. I feel that there's something ingrained in the six-year-old in Boris Johnson and yet again, the whole inevitable sacking of Hancock in some ways, or we'll talk about whether how inevitable what the media role in it was. The Boris Johnson is just immured in his own version of events and they don't tally up with everybody else's.
0: No, well, let's talk about the media. Certainly the BBC was all over the Hancock story and ministers were grilled quite properly about the whole story. And that contrasted with the story that we've covered previously on the podcast, which was the the update, as it were, of the Jennifer Arcuri story that you 've mentioned, Jennifer Arcuri, as you say, had had this long standing relationship with Boris Johnson. There was the possibility anyway that she might have benefited in some way commercially from that that there was a possible conflict of interest, although she has always denied that now, when she came forward early this year with additional information about their affair, which was extensively covered in the newspapers, the BBC. Chose not to cover that story and said that it judges stories according to their editorial merits. Patrick Howes, a former Baghdad correspondent for the BBC, came onto the Byline Times podcast to say at that point the BBC had lost its bottle. There was a kind of selectivity about the sleaze which it chooses to cover.
1: Yes, no, in fact, Selective Sleaze was an article written before the resignation by myself. Our editor on Byline Times, Hardy Matharu, and our chief political reporter, Sam Bright. Um, On that side. I was just trying
0: to nick your best lines, Peter.
1: (laughs) It's not stealing, it's an homage, a homage. Let's put it that way. Uh, (laughs) we, We want our ideas to circulate so people feel they're their own ideas. Yeah. There is The BBC obviously is in a tricky position, though it's interesting how it did cover this. It was given permission to cover this, and we all know about the BBC, it's not brilliant at breaking stories, and it kind of relies on somebody like the Telegraph, you know, to break MPs' expenses, in a way that generally a newspaper will break things first, and the BBC will cover them. And for some reason, most of the newspapers were not interested in the Jennifer Curry affair. Why? Because they want to keep Boris Johnson in place, for whatever reason. The fact he used to work for the Telegraph, the fact the Mail likes his Brexit stance, the fact that the Sun and Rupert Murdoch's Times are very close to Michael Gove, maybe that has something to do with what we see on the front pages and therefore what the BBC will follow. So it begs the question to me, I don't know if you agree, why now with Matt Hancock? Why this thing? Let alone how on earth a camera happened to be placed in some sort of, was it at a fire alarm or something, on a ceiling in a government ministry, and they wait I think, six weeks for this to get out to the press. I presume, I don't know, that somebody's paid a lot of money for it. Maybe that took time. Or have been in court where it's been described, this came out in the sun. And the sun famously, maybe not have any more, but used to have a seven-foot high safe as one of its correspondents said in a in a Kingston court during those phone hacking trials, a seven-foot-high safe filled with compromat, eye-popping material on public figures, which reputedly, and I think it's a bit mythical, this black museum, they call it, in the sun, could be wheeled out at opportune moments to target a politician or celebrity. Uh, even the threat of that, and there's a very funny incident in Michael Wool's book, on Rupert Murdoch, where Rupert Murdoch says to him, they're talking about a politician. He goes, oh, we got a photograph of him. Now, Wolfe's assumption is he probably didn't. But he says that all the time. And people might think, he does have a photograph of me. I think there was some kind of political agreement. This wasn't the feral press. This was a well-organized lobby press, which decide now was the time to get rid of Matt Hancock. Now, it's inconvenient for Johnson i think he was supposed to be the full guy for the public inquiry but for something happened at senior levels and i don't believe it used to be the grandees would turn up at some club in london and say oh i think it's time you better go or, x has really had a fair run crack of the whip time for him to go and these sort of you know aristocrats of the shires or whatever would decide the fate of a tory politician who'd erred or done some wrongdoing i feel the decision's made somewhere else now somewhere around the Baby Shard, where News UK is based, in some lobbying group. It's all very, the way this came out is much more disturbing to me, really, than the fact two people happened to have a snog in an office.
0: Well, my take on this is that Dominic Cummings, of course, had outed In these parliamentary hearings, hadn't he? The low opinion that Boris Johnson had of Matt Hancock, hopeless Hancock, as he was dubbed in the aftermath of those parliamentary hearings. Now, the US alt-right, the Trumpian right in the United States has fostered this idea of the deep state, the idea that there is real power in the country invested beyond the control of politicians. And when the Matt Hancock story came to light, I thought of that and thought, well, isn't it convenient? I don't know if there's a deep state. I'm not suggesting that there is one operating in Britain, but there was something shadowy about the emergence of this story and something very convenient for the timing of Boris Johnson, because he could not sack Matt Hancock in the aftermath of the Dominic Cummings revelations, because that would demonstrate that what Dominic Cummings had said was true. And if what Dominic Cummings had said was true in that respect, how much else of what Dominic Cummings had said was true? However, this story conveniently emerges and Hancock can go, there we go, bye-bye, Mr Hancock.
1: Yeah, it's a very smart analysis. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, yeah, Cummings' testimony, he definitely sharpened the assassin's knife, but who wielded it It was a double-edged blade, to follow my metaphor here, because while he's very dismissive of Hancock, uh, Cummings also very, very dismissive of Boris Johnson, who he now calls the trolley, i.e. a shopping trolley, you know, veering from aisle to aisle. The deep state thing is concerning, and there are evidence of factions going back to the 60s in the security services, sometimes working with tabloids, you know, and they, because there's not one deep state. The deep state is our constitution, which is a bit rickety at the moment, but there are definitely certain forces within it, certain elites, as we saw during Brexit, vying for power over each other. There's a Brexit elite, there's a Westminster uh, metropolitan-liberal bubble, and this Westminster-metropolitan-illiberal bubble. And the illiberal bubble has sort of won with things like GB News, well, at least for the time being. The funny thing about this, I don't think it works anymore, Adrian. You know, it used to be, and we know now, it's through phone hacking and blagging, and and it was the determined concerto of stories by Rupert Murdoch to target John Major's government. And the summer of and the endless resignations and the salacious stories about senior members of his cabinet was organized. But all we saw was Max Clifford coming out, who claimed to be a labor supporter, with another story of a kiss and tell or some clinch in some back corridor. And we fell for it in a way. Well that's awful. You know, Mole, you know, the sort of a John Major had promised to go back to basics and then there was some very basic behavior going on with his senior cabinet members. But I think people see through that now. I think this is a classic sting. You're right, it is a very clever way of Boris Johnson getting rid of Hancock but not over the issues where like the failure of the coronavirus where he's equally culpable but with something much more salacious but I don't know about you but most people go what they don't go Matt Hancock what an awful man he's fallen in love with somebody else they may ask about her employment but they mainly go how did this come out why are we being told this now I think what needs to happen is actually a public inquiry, and investigation of real matters here, the real things of public interest, which we do not know, and is still affecting policy over schools. Exactly what happened to that herd immunity idea, which Hancock was pushing when we now know, at least his own evidence, Dominic Cummings was backing off and trying to go for the elimination of the virus. That's what really matters. This is all sort of fluff and scandal, but We mustn't miss the bigger point, 150,000 deaths, of which a large proportion, especially in that second lockdown, could have well been unnecessary.
0: That's Byline Times executive editor Peter Jukes on Matt Hancock's departure. And you can read much more from Peter in the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which funds this podcast. Get more details on how to subscribe at our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And check out Byline TV as well. That's pretty good. Now, let's hear from Jolyon Morm, the barrister who's digging into the procurement of personal protective equipment has revealed cronyism and sleaze at the heart of government. Through his Good Law project, he had previously challenged ministers over Brexit but it was Jolien's revelations over PPE that led the Daily Mail to suggest that ministers were targeting him and the crowdfunding model which his legal campaigning relies upon. He's been telling me how it all started.
2: Well, it began really in 2013. I was practising at the bar. I had a very lucrative and growing practice, litigating tax avoidance cases, usually for the baddies. But I was bored. And it's not a particularly attractive story, but it is a a true story. I was bored. And Margaret Hodge was quite rightly making a lot of noise about tax avoidance. And I knew where the bodies were buried, often because it was my clients who had dug them in. And so I started writing about Tax avoidance, I thought to myself, I can inform the public debate and in a way that's really quite important because although as a barrister you act for all sorts of people who you don't like and it's important that you do, that's why we have the cabaret rule, you're nevertheless entitled to have your personal views as well. I had my personal views about tax avoidance and I began to write them. And so very quickly, as it happened, because I had decent communication skills, and a first-rate technical knowledge, I was picked up by, initially, the Labour Party and then by the Conservative Party. And the blog that I was writing became very, very influential. Tax was not then a very crowded marketplace. There weren't many people around who actually knew their stuff and were prepared to speak to journalists. Most people who know their stuff use that knowledge to get very, very rich. And I just wasn't that interested in doing that. So over the course of that process, I began to build up quite a big
0: profile,
2: a profile in the media, profile in politics, and also profile with campaigning organisations. So I remember an international campaigning organisation coming to me and saying, we'd like to litigate in this field, and we've got an idea, can you help us work it up? And we couldn't get it off the ground as it happens. But when I then began to see issues that I was interested in, in the public domain, that I thought that people should be litigating because I thought they were wrong, I suppose the seed had been planted in my mind by the time of the Brexit referendum had built a sufficient public platform to be able to launch cases on my own, rather than waiting for a client to approach me with their ideas. The bar is not a very entrepreneurial profession. We're very sort of passive and we sit and wait for people to approach us with their problems, which we're trained to solve. I had crossed the Rubicon, really. I had ideas of my own and I was happy to use the law to pursue them. It was a gradual process. During the course of the Brexit years, I brought a number of successful challenges that grew my public profile. And during the course of that process, Good Law Project emerged. So I was given a relatively small sum of money, £10,000, by a man called Rupert Evans, who's still on the board of Good Law Project. He said, I want you to use this money to amplify your voice. There's no strings. And I ummed and and eventually accepted, and I used the money to set up the website of Good Project, at least in its first iteration. We didn't really get going until I paused for breath and appointed very talented COO Siham Bortkosh, she began to professionalise what had hitherto been really no more than me and my battered mobile phone. And we now have 18 employees, but I imagine by the end of the year, we'll have 30.
0: So the Good Law Project is fundamentally your job now, seeking to gain redress for ordinary citizens against government using legal processes.
2: That's right. It's a full-time job. It's more than a full-time job indeed. I work much harder, doing much more difficult work for much less money running Good Law Project than at the bar. I mean, it was a funny month back in February because in that month, Good Law Project had two judicial reviews, both of which we now know we've won, and I argued two tax cases And each of those cases paid a sum that dwarfed my annual salary for Good Law Project. And more than that, they were much easier. So arguing tax cases felt a bit like doing a Sudoku on the train on the way home. You know, it's a sort of intellectual puzzle to be solved, not this sort of all-consuming, slippery octopus that represents litigating against a profoundly sleazy, dishonest, law-breaking government.
0: You reference the taxi rank principle, whereby lawyers will have to take the next case that is up, whether or not they personally agree with it. But did you have a guilty conscience about representing big companies who were seeking to avoid tax
2: uh, i didn't actually do much work with companies it was mostly individuals um i don't think i had a guilty conscience no i mean a cab rank rule is an important principle if barristers take a view about who is entitled and who is not entitled to legal representation, then the rule of law begins to collapse because those who are accused by the state of wrongdoing lack the ability to defend themselves. So no, I didn't have a guilty conscience, but I did know that it wasn't what I was put on this earth to do. The work that I now do, I find immensely more fulfilling. It makes me much happier, despite the fact that I work much harder and get
0: paid much less. You talked about the current sleazy government as you describe it. When did you first become conscious that PPE contracts, for example, were not being issued in accordance with traditional procurement principles.
2: Every rogue, every SPIV ever has seen in a national crisis the opportunity to make a lot of money. So there was nothing new about how government tendered for PPE the sorts of people that it put in the VIP lane, we believe, for self-interested reasons on occasion. There's nothing new about the enormously wealthy seeing in this human tragedy an opportunity to make vast sums of money. We saw the evidence of it, I suppose, in about June, when we knew really very little about what was happening But what we could see was pretty alarming. You know, there was this confectionary wholesaler in Northern Ireland that had won £108 million of PPE contracts. Uh, There was a small pest control specialist in Littlehampton that had won, initially we were told £108 million, then we were told £36 million, and it now emerges about £350 million of PPE contracts. And there was Ianda, a company owned by a not widely liked businessman through a hedge fund in Mauritius, a sort of particularly grim tax haven that won a £252 million PPE contract for face masks that are not usable in the NHS. And, you know, what we smelt then, smelt bad, smelt bad enough for us to ask procurement lawyers to look at it for us. And as we have learned more and more, the story has got uglier and uglier. The smell has become all-pervading. And I think it is the sort of defining feature of this government, for me, is its sleaze, its contempt for principles that served the united kingdom for many centuries principles around self-restraint around a kind of cultural adherence to good governance around the notion of the value the public interest in proper scrutiny the value in the public continues to trust government continues to trust the state, continues to believe that the state is acting in the public interest, a sort of self-regulation of the powerful, which is the only way a country without a proper constitutional framework can function.
0: And it was your work, wasn't it, which uncovered the existence of the VIP lane, this idea that if you were recommended by a cabinet minister, by an MP or by a peer, you had a fast track to the front of the queue to supply the government with PPE. That's right. We were leaked
2: documents that showed the existence of a VIP lane. Those are government's letters, not mine. We were pretty shocked because it showed a different process for VIPs than for everyone else. We published details of the VIP lane and none of the media would carry that story. Eventually, David Rose at the Daily Mail picked it up sometime later. I think the Independent ran a small piece about it, but the Guardian, the BBC, the Financial Times, no one else would cover it. I mean, many of those media outlets have come back to me and apologised. I suppose it was such an extraordinary thing, but I understand that they found it difficult to believe. But we did have the documents, and I was prepared to share sufficient details of the documents, sufficient details for them to publish without revealing our sources. Of course, everyone has now seen government documents talking about the existence of the VIP lane. We've seen some of the companies that have gone through it.
0: So many of these stories have been picked up by Sam Bright at Byline Times and Sam has done his own original digging as a journalist as well. And it strikes me it's a curious feature of much of your dogged investigative work, that it's the kind of research that traditionally would have been carried out by journalists. And yet journalists in mainstream outlets have very often ignored what you've done.
2: We get a reasonable amount of pickup from
0: the mainstream
2: press, usually. I think that the nervousness, the lack of courage, let me put it accurately, that characterise the response to our VIP lane revelations is a really regrettable feature of the media landscape more generally. I mean, it's a slightly more complex picture, I think, than your question suggests. One of the reasons we succeed where the fourth estate, generally speaking, does not is because... Government ignores its obligations under the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, which is an important route for the delivery of stories into the public domain via leading media outlets. And if government ignores the FOIA regime, then it gives an advantage to those like us who are Litigating and who can force transparency with a a sort of sharper edged mechanic of of litigation than media outlets that are forced to rely on the sort of blunt mechanic of FOIA. But there is more than that. We have a better mechanic, and that explains in part our successes. But there is a lack of courage, a really profound lack of courage, a profoundly damaging lack of courage, actually on the part of many organizations, many media outlets, even those that I like, and a really dynamic political environment with a government that has proven time and again that it will behave very badly indeed, dishonestly, institutionally, for media outlets to lack courage, I think is a pretty damning indictment. It means that they cannot do the very important job that society allocates them.
0: One final thought, Uh, aside from the specifics of PPE that we have discussed, you tweet frequently about what you describe as pork barrel politics. That's a phrase borrowed from the United States, but essentially about politicians seeking to by votes through indirect means, by promising investment into local areas, if only voters would vote for their particular party. And that's part of this culture of sleaze that you've identified around government at the moment. That's right. So what you do is you say to voters, if you elect
2: me, I will secure that public money flows into projects that will benefit you. So you're basically using public money to buy votes. barrel politics is a phrase from the US. We have never seen it, or at least not in modern times in the UK. But it's pretty clear to me, certainly if you look at who is getting all of the money, that, and you look at, indeed at the messaging from Conservative Party MPs and would-be MPs, that the public is being told... If you want investment in your local area, you need to vote Conservative. If you don't vote Conservative, there won't be any
0: investment.
2: And we believe that that's unlawful and we've brought judicial review proceedings to to challenge it.
0: Julian Maugham, and there's a link to the Good Law Project on our podcast hosting page. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. You can read more like this in the Byline Times newspaper. So don't forget to subscribe. More details at BylineTimes.com. That's BylineTimes.com. See you next week.